you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. I'm just going to come right out and say it right from the get-go. This is the worst. This is the worst episode. This will be the worst (laughs) episode of this show we've ever made because this is going to be like Remember when you were a kid and you'd turn on TV and there'd be, a, there'd be like, I think they still do this though. There's like a channel where everyone on the channel is selling something. QVC. Ronco. This yeah, is like watching, yes, this is like watching that. This is like watching an infomercial. I'm just going to come flat out and say it, and, but, but there's some special parts to it. Right now, here's the deal. Well, you're, if even a small dinky dinky, a small percentage of the people that will listen to this show. If a small percentage, almost like a single digit percentage. Is that right? Yeah. Of the people that will listen to this show would go on to Amazon right now and get 35 bucks and go buy the meat eater fishing game cookbook. Whose subtitle is recipes and techniques for every hunter and angler, which is available for its launches. It's like coming out November 20. If a small fraction of the people listen to this would go do it, it would do me such a huge favor. And I would like be really happy. It'd be like my life goal would have been achieved and I would never work again. What they should do is is buy two, buy two because it's Christmas time. Yeah. So the, how many pages are in that book? We actually brought an actual salesman who's never, (laughs) Matt, how many units, Matt Cook, how many units of things have you sold in your life? Not as many as I could sell this book. 
Uh, well, you're feeling that confident. He's I'm never feeling, touched I'm the book. That confident. He's a professional salesman, well trained. Has never touched the book, but we brought him in just to work up a sales pitch to sell it. Absolutely. He's he's working on it right now. But just quick, how many pages? Then I'm going to talk about some other 350 stuff. Three hundred and fifty pages of goodness. Three hundred and fifty pages covering processing of so like how to cut up, how to cook. Over a hundred original recipes and processing in recipe and cooking and fixing and substitution information for everything. It's broken down like this. And then I'm going to talk about some other stuff for a while. I'm just going to keep returning to this damn book to try to talk people into just doing me a humongous favor and going and buying it now. Um, it's broken up into big game. So like, you know, mostly like antlered and horned being gay, but also pigs and bears. And then small game, which is like furred small game. So hares, rabbits, squirrels, and then upland birds, waterfowl, freshwater fish, saltwater fish, shellfish and crustaceans, and reptiles and amphibians. All about, have you ever seen a more beautiful pictorial of how to butcher a snapping turtle? No, I've never seen a reptiles and amphibians chapter. Uh, no, it's beautiful. That's because most cookbooks suck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I got. You know, you know, you haven't heard this. I was going to say I was going to make everyone here pretend that I didn't tell them. So I, I, you, you guys are good at lying, right? Real good. Okay, so sure. lie for a minute. But Matt wasn't here, so let me ask you this: A guy wrote in that this is interesting. Speaking of wild game, his freezer. He had a, his freezer went kaput on him. And it should have gone kaput on him. So he calls his insurance agent. And he wants to make a claim on having lost all of his wild game. So he calls his insurance agent. agent, And the guy says, I've been in this business for a decade. And no one's ever asked me about how to handle a claim on having lost wild game. Like what the value of it is. So this guy goes to the state office and comes back with this. The Farm Bureau of the state of Mississippi had come up with this formula years ago, lack of formula, that since there's no comparable market value for wild game, the only monetary replacement you can get when you make a claim on losing your wild game is the cost of processing. If you processed your own wild game, you're out of luck. So when you lose a freezer... You lose a whole out because your freezer goes to shit. Your insurance might own, might compensate you, but limited to what you paid to have it processed is the only value they'll assign to it. And this guy Could goes. You just drop like an invoice that said I paid my wife a thousand dollars to process. Yeah, you know, I don't know how di- how deep they dig, but it's really interesting, man. And he's like the dude that wrote in is talking about how you know. So you know we've talked about this a thousand times, but the you know wild game resources in this country were depleted horribly. Deer, turkeys, waterfowl, passenger pigeon driven to extinction, buffalo nearly driven to extinction by market hunters. So people that shot game and sold it into commercial markets um, and, and made their living doing it. And one of, the, one of the many things we had to do to save American wildlife was end the selling of wild game. We've talked about this a bunch too. Like the other night I was in a situation where I was almost forced to go eat pen-raised elk. So if you see elk on a restaurant menu, it's not real elk. It's the elk raised up on a, 
you know, it's the elk raised up on a, on a farm or ranch, right? It's not, you can't sell wild game. So he's saying that this is one downside of that system is you can't get your, you can't get properly compensated. What if you shot the elk on a $10,000, you know, paid guided trip? Could you turn that in to the insurance company? I certainly would try. Well, all I can tell you, and this is just anecdotal, because this is just one mug from Mississippi, but that's what he had happen to him, and that's what he found when he researched it. Now, maybe if you had some hard-hitting lawyers or something, but I would tend to doubt it, man. I would tend to doubt it, because there you're paying for the experience. But you would, you're right, Giannis, you'd have, a, you'd have an invoice, you'd have you know, a credit card statement that was the dollars that generated that, but... I certainly think people should try. I think maybe one agent to another may be able to slip one through. Yeah, yeah. it'd be worth a try. Here's another thing. We were talking about swamp rabbits. The cottontail rabbits, when, they, when a cottontail rabbit shits in the woods, he doesn't seem to pay a whole lot of attention where he goes. Um, he just goes. Matt, wherever. are you cool on swamp rabbits? Does that you know what a swamp about? rabbit is? I absolutely do not know what a Sil- swamp rabbit Sil- is. Silvalagus aquaticus? Okay, the Latin name. Yep, now I'm familiar. Do you do you know? Do you <laughs> I know? It, I got it now. If you go by Latin, I'm good. Do you know that rabbits aren't rodents, Matt? Uh, I did know that rabbits were not rodents. The lagomorphs. They're a lagomorph. Absolutely. So, <laughs> the swamp rabbit is just a souped-up cottontail. Okay, five six-pound cottontail, who will jump in the Mississippi River and swim across in order to evade a hunting beagle. It is a indigenous to the south swamp rabbits. We don't have them. Yeah, north. they're yeah, but but you know not they they can go into the deep south, but they're also found in the in the border country. We've been debating a lot about what is the south, okay. you know, and um, but they're in Kentucky, okay, okay, which is the south, but some people feel like it's nudging, it's edging toward the north. One time Lincoln, I think, sat in in Ohio and yelled across the river at the, at Kentucky, mad at them about Southern issues. But so, uh, cottontail, normal cottontail rabbit, Eastern cottontail, mountain cottontail. He just shits wherever he wants, right? They don't have any rhyme or reason to it. But a swamp rabbit has uh, fidelity to his latrine. And Giannis has seen this. Back me up. I have. A guy was pointing out, I was talking about this, puzzling over it. And I was saying, like, when it, in their environs where they live, it's very flax. They live on the floodplain. And I thought maybe he gets a log he likes to go on, and he defecates on the log, and it just makes it higher and higher up. Because a llama, who also has fidelity to his latrine, will defecate and build up such a mound of pellets that he uses it as a lookout, like a crow's nest. Wow. A fellow a fella wrote in. And he was saying that he doesn't really know about this idea that rabbits defecate on a log with the intent of building up a little mound that they can sit on. He says that may be true. But he also points out that it's necessary for cottontails to eat their own poop. It's called caprophagy. And he wonders about if it's not in the in these uh, these environs that are prone to flooding, that if it's not just a good way for him to store his doo doo, why are they eating their? I own? don't say that very often. 
Why are they eating their own <laughs> shit? You know, it has something to do with um, it has something to do with their digestive tract. Maybe Yanni can look that up. A lot of times, he'll ask him to look stuff up, and then by the end of the show, he'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a sales idea because damn sure doesn't have anything to add to the. <laughs> you could domesticate swamp rabbits so that you know, like a cat, it would shit in the same place in your house versus a cottontail, which would shit all over the house. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a business opportunity there. I like the way you're thinking. Now, um, guy wrote in this. This is interesting. Guy writes in. We were talking recently about um, the sort of uh, existential crisis that hunters in New Zealand and Australia are facing right now, where hunters in New Zealand and Australia are predominantly hunting. You know, there's like kangaroo hunting there for commercial markets, but like your recreational hunters in Australia and New Zealand are hunting non-natives. And they will often, uh, they will often justify their pursuits by explaining how they're helping to control. And if you go on social media and you watch, you'll see Australian hunters, you know, talking about this, like, man, you know, to save the natives, we got to do all this hunting. Um, but then what happened, the reason we were talking about this recently is because in New Zealand, the government, who does a lot of culling, they do a lot of control work on some of these more uh, abundant non-native ungulates. Uh, they do a lot of control work on them, and they're talking about upping the control work and getting rid of them. And it's making the hunters there real uneasy. And I was pointing out how it's hard because you're sort of justifying your activity by saying we're helping to control non-natives. But then when the government decides just to do a total eradication, the hunters get nervous because they want some. And so you're left with where your rhetorical strategy, right? The, the thing you use to justify your activities becomes null and void. And a guy actually wrote in from Australia and he was saying that he says it does put us in a funny position. Because we're, he says, quote, we are left exposed to the harsh reality of not just saying that we want them here so we can hunt them. What do you think about that, Yanni? I'm glad that he wrote in and accepted that. Just admitted it. Yeah. It's tricky, man. I wouldn't like. But we've been saying, and I think all along, it's sort of it's been a lousy argument why you should hunt and, and uh, just lousy justification for hunting really yeah you can't act like yeah if if i think a lot of people do it in a lot of different ways people struggle with you know there's a lot of, it's it's complicated right if someone said hey man why do you like to go to baseball games you're not going to have like oh a reason it's a whole bunch of reasons going back to how you were brought up and what it makes you think of and time with family you like hot buttered popcorn I mean, right, all, all manner of things. This, this is a huge package of things. But I think hunters a lot of times get in this thing where they try to narrow it down. Or like, oh, if we didn't hunt, the deer would overtake us and kill us all mm -hmm. or whatever. And um, when you get into this, like where it's justified by where you're just saying like, oh, no, I just do it for population control. And then someone says, oh, you know, don't worry about it, bro. We'll take care of it. The government will do it. Then you're like, then you got to be like, man, I wish I would have said something different. Another guy wrote in about, uh, he, he says a good way to have chew, good way to dip. He likes to mix. He mixes hubba bubba 
The bubblegum? Yeah, with Red Man. Mm, I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. Have we consulted with Dirt on that? Is that no, but that's, what he, that's a baseball player thing. That's who he's writing in about. And he says, the question is, what do you get first, cancer or diabetes? <laughs> <laughs> that's a strange mix. Yeah. <laughs> Another guy wrote in. He's like, man, you guys are always arguing about Tony C's and Old Bay. Steve being a Tony C's man and Yanni being an Old Bay man. And he's like, what about Mrs. Dash? Big Mrs. Dash fan. It's you good. Th- it has its place, but it's not like the other two. He thinks it's real good to take like uh, fish fillets and put some Mrs. Dash on it and wrap the fish up in aluminum foil and cook it. He likes to take pickerel. Pickerel, you wrap them in tin foil, put some butter and some Mrs. Dash on there. He says, you're floored how good it is. He doesn't put anything else on his fish. Isn't Mrs. Dash like a... It's across the country, right? And isn't Old Bay and Tony C's kind of just Maryland and like? No, dude, Tony C's is everywhere, man. Yeah, really? I was, I I got on to Tony. I got, I got on to, I got on to Tony C's. I got on to Tony C's in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. What? You can't get farther away from the Bayou Country and still be in the country. I've been duped. Well, Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) I've been lied to for a while. Then we used to call Tony C's Uncle Tom's for some reason. I have no idea why. Huh. You know you Uncle could, Tom's Cabin. Mm-hmm. Harry you probably just couldn't pronounce right? chat trees. Yeah, it was like some kind of shortcut, but I still don't understand how you'd come up with Uncle Tom's. Someone must have been reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, We've been having a lot of talk about uh, how good, how well dogs can smell. And a, a, a guy wrote in, and he's a police officer, and he's a canine handler. He was trained for two years to work with canines. He worked with a German, a half German Shepherd, half Belgian Melon, Melanois. Anybody know this? M A L I N O I S? Nope. Anyway, some kind of souped up mutt. And <laughs> dog's name was Kane. And he was a dual purpose dog, meaning he was a narcotic detective dog and suspect apprehension. Oh, yeah. That's a mean looking dude right there. That, that's like the, the guy that in movies. When a police dog chomps on the bad guy's arm, that's the Melanois. Yeah. Well, you know what he's saying about this dog? Tell me. He's talking about, he's talking about, he, he, he just, only reason he wrote in is he, because we were struggling to explain like how well a squirrel dog can smell. Like how can a squirrel dog do such a good job of smelling squirrels? And he, he just brings up a way that it was explained to him. One, he says it was explained to me in training that it, Dogs can smell up to 50,000 times better than we do, which is like hard to, right? It's still hard. But he's he's like, there's a good anecdote. There's a thing called the cake theory. So let's say your mom bakes a cake and you walk in the house. You You walk in the house and you take in the smell and you're like, oh, someone made a cake. Mm -hmm. Like that's the smell you get. He says a good way to think about it would be that a dog walks in the house and he goes, oh, Eggs, flour, milk, salt, sugar. And that's how he feels that they're a way to distinguish their abilities from our own. Um, another guy wrote in, and here's, here's a guy. He's kind of established his credentials. You remember, Yanni, can you recap the Andrew McLean story, the famous skier? Mm-hmm. I believe I can. He was caught. Uh, Explain like who he is and what he does and whatnot. 
He, um, it was Andrew McLean, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't want to mix him up with other some other famous skier, but he uh, he's like a Utah backcountry skier known for pioneering, I think, some lines in the Wasatch and writing a uh, like a ski guidebook for skiing the Wasatch. And Is that how you say that? Mm-hmm. I always said it a little dinky bit wrong. Well, I'm sure Wasatch, Wasatch. Yeah, that's what I would have said. Yeah. Wasatch. Wasatch. I'm in and out of that place all the time. Go ahead. Um, anyways, he was caught on trail camera, stealing a trail camera and a tree stand or two, maybe even he the, made the, the, he, the guy he, had the hunter for some reason had like a double camera set and, um, uh, and they only saw one camera and took it and the tree stand and the other camera caught them in the act of doing it. Just, yeah. Stealing it. Stealing. Well, this guy writes in and he's kind of like setting up his credentials. He opens up. He he opens up by saying, I'm just headed out to film a dinosaur digging project for Nat Geo. So he's like laying, he's like, okay. you know what I mean? He doesn't say like why that matters, but he throws it out there because he's wanting to, right? He's wanting to paint a picture. He's like B- a- Build up his street cred. He's building up some cred. So you're supposed to be like, man, well, you guys are camera guys. When you hear that he's going to film a dino digging thing, are you thinking like this guy's top shelf? Depends on what <laughs> branch in that geo it is, man. <laughs> <laughs> there's like there's a couple different ones. So so you hear that and you don't automatically think that you're because I'm gonna get into a negative about this. It's person. on that geo because we're gonna get into a negative about this guy. Um, he he, he so he sets up his his credentials by saying he's he's he's, he's in Niger. Um which is in Africa and he's heading out to film a dino digging project for Nat Geo. And he says, I get why McLean did it. And he talks about, he just started bow hunting this season and he talks about how hunters litter a lot. And a lot of times you'll find where hunters leave little stashes out in the woods and a lot of garbage out in the woods and our tattered sleeping bag and old tarp and, and unusable MREs and doesn't like it. Hunters are real dirtbag woods trashers um and he goes on to say that he goes on to propose the idea that mclean was simply cleaning up the woods by stealing a tree stand and a trail camera which is an indefensible position to take there's a big difference between garbage left out in the woods in someone's legally placed tree stand and trail camera. Anyone want to add to that? Here, here. That's <laughs> <laughs> the lovely voice of Mark Kenyon. Yeah, you could, you could take that a bunch. Of, you could say like you, your your car is like a hunk of metal just sitting out there. Yeah. So I'm going to steal that to clean this place up. <laughs> I was yeah. cleaning up some new truck I found out in the woods. I think the more interesting thing is the tactic that the hunter who had his stuff stolen, I think the tactic he used was something that more people should use in the whitetail world. Double kill. And I do know some people have talked about it. I've got a friend who who was trying this. But it's a great way to, uh, if we get the word out that enough people are doing that, I think a lot of trail camera thieves will think twice. Mm. To do the double camera. Yeah, because I might be getting pictured right now. We we were looking at we had a dude showing us a bunch of trail cameras on his uh 
we were mule deer hunting in Colorado and ran into a fella. Remember this, Yanni? And he was showing us a bunch of trail cam pictures of various elk and mule deer and whatnot. And they all were taken at a downward angle. Mm-hmm. You remember right. this? And I was like, what the, the guy going from New on? Mexico. Yeah. I was like, what's right. going on with this? He said, trail camera theft is so bad in New Mexico that he now places his trail cameras up high up in trees angled down. So I do that, that on public land. People don't notice them. Yeah. Doesn't the cameras that send the pictures to the internet, you know, deter some of the stealing? I mean, you'd get a picture when someone goes to steal your camera. Has that curbed? Oh, any yeah, of the, the theft? The direct transmit. Yeah. I think that the percentage yeah. of trail cameras out there that have that feature is still so small. Okay. That, But yes, I think that it's getting to the point that more and more people worry about that. I actually have gone to the, um, to the point where I place no trespassing signs that I will specifically say property, I'll, I'll write and mark a property patrolled with, with cellular cameras, that kind of thing, where there's some serious issues of trespassing. So they say, oh, yeah, so that... I can't steal the camera. Picture's going to be sent right away. That's a heck of a deterrent. And it's true or not true? It's true. Okay. Um, you know, this is, uh, take this with, a, take this with, I'm going to say something and uh, keep in mind that I'm, that, that well, I'm gonna, I'll just come out and say it. If I could, if I was the, the, the command master of the universe, I would get rid of trail cameras. But I would also get rid of the internet. <laughs> and I use the internet. And in fact, this is like an internet-based digital radio program. So it's like I'm comfortable using it. But if I was commander of the universe and I could make it go away, I would make it go away. And I would make trail cameras go away. Even though I will use trail cameras, I would like, I wish they hadn't been invented. I understand that position. And I understand both sides. But one, I love trail cam pictures. I post them all the time on social media because it's like cool. I like how they've rewritten some of our understanding of wildlife distribution and I love it. And it like you learn from it, but there's just something about it is like, uh, I, I, I only don't like them when I run into one. I like yeah. my friends a lot. I just don't like other people's. And I think that a lot of people are getting a little bit wigged out with the fact that there's like surveillance in the Hills now. I get that. I do think it also, there's something to be said about, and I've kind of battled with this a little bit myself, the fact that it takes a little bit of the mystery away. There's something to be said about going out into the woods and, and not knowing what might show up yeah. later tonight. Now it's, well, it's going to be this buck, this buck, or that buck, and there's never a surprise. Dude, the buck I saw this morning, I was trying to figure out what one it was from well, the trail camp pictures you were showing out. me. <laughs> so, so Yeah, I, you're, like, you're sitting out there, it's, you feel like you're like waiting for a friend when you're out in the woods now, man. I know he comes here. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, there's the one guy and the other uh-huh. guy. Yeah, I kind of like, I don't like it, but that's not what I don't like about it. I don't like being out and, and all of a sudden realizing there's like some guy's trail camera sitting there. Yeah. Why not confine him to private? You know, you know what's cool? It was cool, but it went away. Like Montana, for a couple of years, had it be that when big game season opened, you had to pull them. That just changed mm-hmm. this past year. Then they made it go back the other way again. Mm-hmm. Pay attention here, because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks or 
You open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dugs, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Dugs' place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Something It's just going to get too ridiculous because as the technology gets better and like people are just able to like live stream. Mm, it just yeah. is, I don't there know, need, man. It's just like, be, it just is, it's just too much. It's there too needs to be some, kind of, some kind of limits. Some kind of regulation. Yeah, we limit all kinds of stuff. Yeah, we need to have that. That's what I'm saying. I think one. Like thing, you can't use a red dot. You can't use. You, you can't use a red dot sight on your bow. There's like all kinds of stuff we limit. 
the the regulation I would like to see put on trail cameras has to do with cell cameras because that's where I see this line being crossed with some line of ethics. And everyone else, everyone's going to have their own opinion on this. Um, but I find where it gets real weird for me is when you get a picture now that's happening right now and you can make a hunting decision right now based off real-time data. That seems to, to go over the line for me personally. I wish there was like a fair chase mode that you could turn on your trail camera or maybe there'd be a law someday that requires this, that requires a 24-hour delay before anything gets sent. So there's no real-time, you're not going to see what's happening right now. You can get the benefits of a cell camera, that being it gets transmitted to your computer or phone so that if you live 1,500 miles away or whatever, you can still get your pictures. Or if you don't want to have to go in there every two weeks and put your scent all over the place. But this at least keeps you from abusing that technology. At least I think it's abuse. If you see a picture on your phone right now and go stalking in there and shoot that buck. That's like, yeah. for me, that's, yeah. That's why you need to, when you're going to do stuff like this, usually the fish and game agencies try to get out ahead of it before it becomes standard accepted practice. Mm-hmm. Like how people were so aggressive around regulating the use of drones right. before before drones became super widespread and had so much common use because then it's hard because there's like a resistance built up and and i just haven't seen anywhere doing like that kind of leadership i'm looking like where is this going where you can be out in the woods you know you you go out and plant 20 cameras that are all giving you a live feed of what's going on and you got them in all your elk meadows or you got them in all your what you got a camera on all of your duck ponds that you like to go jump shoot and you got a live stream on your phone. I mean, we're like, you could do this right now. Yeah. And you're like, oh, let's go hit that pond, jump that pond. They're on the they're on the whatever end of the pond, so let's make sure we approach from that end. Yeah. Because there's a lot of states, and I think more should get on board of ban two-way communications to, like, coordinate the taking a game. It's just, it's just someone's going to have to get out ahead of it. I, I feel like it. it's definitely um, on my property has, has influenced – you know, how we look at it when game move, it's demystified, or maybe it shouldn't have, you know, demystified if, you know, they, there's animal activity in the middle of the day. You know, we've never been in a position where, you know, let's go hunt, that buck is on that spot at this particular time. But overall movement, you know, or you look and see, you know, they moved overnight because it was a full moon, and you probably will have a slow morning. It hasn't equated to success in particular. Um, it has definitely reduced trespassing because you only have to catch someone, you know, 10 minutes after they've been there. Not only I think you're a freak for monitoring, but if you go there and show them a picture of them on your property within a few minutes, it prevents, the word gets out, prevents a lot of trespassing. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot of positives. Mm-hmm. But just it, it's something that just it, it's something that concerns me, and I think it's going to become more of an issue as the technology gets better. Mark Kenyon wired to hunt. Yep. So you think you're wired to hunt? Let me ask you this: this this is how the email started. Someone said that. No, <laughs> I'm saying that. This is a great question. Guy writes in: My dad and I have been hunting on a large property next door to their house, almost a thousand acres, for all of our lives. Three years ago, the founder of, uh, of a chip company, I don't want to name the chip company, the founder of a chip company bought the land. 
and he puts a fence up around it for the purpose of keeping his cattle from roaming off the property. But it's a nice big decorative fence. He puts an eight-foot wood fence around the perimeter of the whole property. Eight-foot tall wood fence. He says to keep his cattle in. Wow. The guy's still allowed to hunt it. But he's always been uneasy with the idea of hunting high fence. So here is he's always hunted a property. All of a sudden, it becomes fenced. They go in there last year on opening weekend, and they both get to get a deer. And then they got, and they agreed not to hunt anymore. They just can't decide. He says he still goes in there to trap. He goes in there to small game hunt, but he feels weird hunting ducks, hunting deer on it, knowing that the deer are stuck in there and can't get out. Wow. What a that bizarre, is a tough one, What a man. bizarre scenario. That is a tough scenario. Can anyone put a eight foot decorative fence around their property, where where you are basically you have captive wildlife? Right, you're privatizing. I mean, isn't that well, yeah, in Texas? You can, I, I, he, mean, he doesn't say what state he's in, but I wouldn't be surprised. But any property, if you know there's wildlife, can you build a decorative fence around your property, knowing that it's going to capture wildlife on the inside? Yeah, well, when people fence, when people do high fence things on. High fence stuff in Texas, yeah, you don't need to like kick all the deer off and then build the fence. But it's not. Is that regulated by state wildlife? I don't know. I don't know what the permitting system is. And I don't know. He doesn't say where he is. I'm more interested in not to see if the guy's being. If the guy, I'm not really interested if the dude. I mean, it's interesting. Yep. I'd love to know if the dude is like a breaking a law or not. Just, yep. but I'm more interested in like the 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 idea of it. Yep. So here is he hunts, and all of a sudden it's fenced. Does he go get a new spot? That's a really really. Tough question, man. I feel like if that happened to me, I don't know, man. It'd be real hard to go and like walk away from your spot. I understand. I I think I would feel dirty. I would feel, at least for 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 me, I would start to have weird questions about it because of that point he brought up. Like all of a sudden now you're hunting a high fence property, and all the things that means possibly. Thing is, a thousand acres is big. It's big. But then we talk about the re- the reduction of mystery. You're never going to get a surprise deer on there again. You're never going to have the risk of someone else getting that deer or that deer disappearing. Or there, yeah, it's still a challenge. Of course, there's still going to be a lot of work probably has to go into it. But it's different. 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 It would be diminished. It would be diminished. And I would probably do the same thing he did. Yanni. Yanni's thinking so hard. I just don't. uh, It's never going to come up again. He's going to be the only guy ever in the history of our country to have to (laughs) wrestle with this. A thousand acre decorative fence. (laughs) I actually want to see the fence. I I feel sorry for the guy that he's got to wrestle with it, but I don't know if us talking about it is going to help anybody else. So you just don't see it being an issue. Yeah, I mean, I think you just get to go in there and see, see how it feels. And, like, I would just say, look, keep hunting it until you're like, okay, that that was so easy and do because of the decorative fence, and, and I'm quitting, you know? I got to add here that I am the one that I use the word decorative. He doesn't use the word decorative, oh. but an eight-foot wood, no, 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 an eight-foot wooden fence is not a practical fence. There's cheaper ways of doing that. There's an incredible amount of money spent on a thousand acre fence. Yeah, eight that's foot insane. high. That's not that's a typical insane. high fence. Yeah. 
What's a typical high fence? They're high. Just well, barbed wire. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, just like woven wire. Yeah, exactly. Wire. I, I, yeah, I think meant height. Ridge Pounder, you got nothing to say about that, probably, dude. No, it's kind of out of your area. <laughs> no, no, I got an opinion. He's got to hang it up, dude. He's got he's got to just give that spot up. There's no question. Really? In my mind, yeah. It's not easy for me, man. No, there's a fence there, dude. I don't know. I I feel, I feel like I might. I'd probably still be. I'd probably still poke around in there now and then. <laughs> you can poke around all you want. I, I just be like, I don't know. Maybe he didn't fence the whole thing. Turkey. But would you be like? Would you be like him and hanging up just big game, or would you say, Yep, the rabbits are high fenced now. The squirrels are high fenced. Can't hunt. There's no such thing as a high fence squirrel. Yeah, because the squirrels can jump. Yeah, that's rabbits. that's true. Rabbits. I I yeah. I don't really. That's up to him. But yeah, man. He's got to quit. Do you know a guy wrote into you? A guy wrote into me? Yeah. About what? <laughs> the gray rabbit. What, what does he got to say? He says you should have done candlelight dinner. Hide the grayness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is very, very smart. Okay, one more, one, more, uh, one more real zinger. Real zinger. Um. Don't you go, forget, you're supposed to be pushing the cookbook. Well, I'm coming around to that. I'm giving Matt time to work up a sales mm. pitch. Then I want to talk about the cookbook. I have a question real quick about the dog and the smell. I don't know the answer, but go okay, ahead. Okay, let me ask this question. I was pheasant hunting last year, and it was September, and it was hot. And our guide said that one of the issues the dog was having was your analogy that he used chili, that the dog can smell all of the spices, the beef and everything, and that it was... Um, if it's cold out, it's not as hard on the dog. The dog can find pheasants easier, but when it's hot, it, they can smell every ingredient. You know, they smell the the plants. You know, they can smell other animals, rabbits. Have any of you heard that that heat? I feel like I've heard that. My buddy Ronnie Bame would absolutely have a lot to say about that. So we'll have to return to that. Okay. Oh, I had heard dryness versus moisture. So if like a moist situation, they'll be able to smell more. And I heard this in the context of, of tracking deer. So tracking a wounded deer or a hit deer, actually tracking on a rainy day is better than a bone-dry day. Similar there. He was saying, you know, when it was cold and he didn't say if there was snow or not, that the, the dog could identify a pheasant scent much easier if it's cold because it's, it's a singular mm-hmm. scent versus overwhelmed by all of the scents when it's warm. I'm, tra- I'm tracking what you're saying, and I can't remember. I know that I heard when I was running dry ground lions with someone one time with a feller by the name of Floyd, we were tracking mountain lions with dogs, and I remember he had a lot of opinions about the climatic conditions and its effect on a dog's nose and its ability to code trail and hot trail. I just can't remember what... You know, like what was the, what was good and what was bad. But I remember that he had a lot of thoughts about it. Did you see the mats running that axe we like to hold lot, Yanni? No, I see it now. Oh yeah, no. that's the yeah. Alaska axe, man. Yeah, well, man. It's the old uh, I forget what it was called. S wing. Yeah, S wing. But what's the name? The model. That's that's what one of the nicest mass produced axes I've ever laid my laid a hand on. Matt, I'm not trying to bother you up because you're going to give a sales pitch of this book. <laughs> okay, here's one more real zinger. Real zinger for everybody. This is, uh, this is more of a zinger than the zinger from a minute ago. He goes on to say how he uh, hates hunting shows. That's cool. Then he goes on to say, um, 
lots of reasons. Um, he goes on to say how, how he's heard me mention that if you took away the food or you took away the fun, I, I would lose interest in hunting. Like it's a package of things that, that all need to be there for me to love it like I do. Um, and he goes on to say that he needs my opinion on something. He works with a fella who he generally likes. We get along just fine. And he goes on to say this. The dude is, this, this is why I almost wonder if this like, is true. I feel like it must be true. The guy is a vegetarian. Okay? But not one of those annoying ones that throws it in your face. But here's where it gets weird. He's a vegetarian, but he hunts. He likes to hunt deer and turkeys, but doesn't believe in eating them. What? He just donates it all to a food bank. And the guy's saying, I cannot wrap my head around this. And he um, says, no one buys a pair of pants from J.C. Penney just to take them down to the Salvation Army and drop them off. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. It's, yeah, there probably are a few charitable folks that do, do that. <laughs> that buy clothes and that donate them. It's a good question, man. Like, you won't eat it, but you like to shoot it. I, I've always, like, it's another one of those things, I, it's just one of those things I see both sides of. I can't really work up a good opinion about it. The, really, the fact that he's a vegetarian has nothing to do with it, because I feel like I know dudes that are uh, full-on carnivores that do the same thing. Yeah, but it makes it kind of even more zingy-like that he's a vegetarian, right? Sure, a little bit, but I think when you take a step back, it's it's like the same wrong. Wrong. But, but, wrong. Yeah. Wrong, you're saying. Remember um, Happy Days when Fonzie was wrong? He couldn't say wrong. I don't. He'd be like, I was... Like he couldn't bring himself to say it. That was some funny shit. I know people. I know people though who will shoot a deer purposefully to donate it, and they view that as like a way to give back. So they are. But do they also shoot a few for their own freezer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But why not just give money to the food bank? It's a different way to go about it. And maybe I don't know. Maybe part of it is because they enjoy the hunting aspect of it. So to your point, they, there's food, there's fun, and then also there's the management perspective too. They might need to be taking some management deer off the yeah. farm or something like that. So that might be part of it. But um, I'm, I'm just devil's advocate, man. Yeah, yeah. I, but I, but I think that the interesting thing is though, if this guy is fundamentally opposed to the eating of meat, so what if his so many people I'm imagine would advocate for the vegetarian or vegan lifestyle because they don't want an animal's life to be taken or blood on their hands, maybe or something like that. So this guy obviously doesn't care about that. He's not that kind. He's not that guy. So then what's what's his angle? I don't know. It's just weird. Plant based diet, health benefits. So it's a health maybe. thing for him. I do now and then if again man, just like playing devil's advocate because I can I can see both sides of it to a crippling degree. But I do now and then wonder if you don't want like, let's say you're um, in a situation where, yeah, you don't want it. Why not just let someone who wants it get it? Why not, yeah. like, leave it for who, someone that wants it? I get that. I, I have a hard time. I, I, I can't justify killing an animal unless I'm actually going to personally eat it. So I would have a hard time doing that. But I also can understand people that do. 
I mean, I, there's yeah. something to be said about helping other people with food. It's a food acquisition process. Um, I know a lot of guys that maybe will keep a little bit and then share the rest. Mm-hmm. And I certainly, I share a significant portion of venison sometimes too. Like I'll have a surplus and I'll share that. And I guess like it's, it. there's some, where's the line where that becomes questionable? I don't That's know. why I'm thinking about this because I'm kind of like the worst kind of person where I'll share it with people who are, are uh, I'll share it with people who are relative to the population in general, quite wealthy. And I think that that's just great. Right. But then when someone shoots a deer and just brings it down to a food bank, I'm like, hey, what's that all about? But I'm like, well, hold on. I'm giving it to like, I give game meat to rich people. Right. <laughs> that's the anti-Robin like, Hood, man. It's like, <laughs> why not go, like, you know, wouldn't it be a lot better to go give it to the needy? Yeah. Especially if you're going to pick up the processing fee. Yeah. What What if someone was, uh, like one of your buddies was like, man, it's last week elk season. I'm not going to be able to get out. You have a few free days. You think you could, and you had a, you had like a cow tag or something. My own cow tag. Your own cow tag. And your freezer was full. You didn't plan on filling that cow tag because your freezer is full. And if you were to shoot another one, you would have way too much for the year. Is it a good friend? It, it could be whoever. But yeah, someone was like, for a good someone friend. was like, Steve, I'm not going to get out anymore. Yes. You for, think you could, for a good friend. You could burn that, that cow tag for me. Yeah, for a good friend, I would do that. Okay. But you're right, and I'm just the kind of worst kind of person where I wouldn't be like, you know what, I'm going to do it and pay the processing and drop it off at the food bank. Because I'm suspicious of that for a weird reason that doesn't make any sense, and it's making me feel a little embarrassed that I feel this way. Well, it's it's because the food bank's like the easy way out. Like, I know know people that would shoot shit and just take it to the food bank because they don't want to deal with it. That's okay. Yeah, you're you're helping me articulate my perspective on it because, like, I bring a lot. You have a lot of assumptions. So in some way, you're kind of looking at it like, um, in some way, you're kind of looking at it like you're sort of reading into their motivations. Because let's say you met a guy who's a volunteer at the food bank, and he's like, "Man, I volunteered for ten years at the food bank, and I'm telling you, it's really hard. Like, the protein is hard to come by, and when we get the venison in." People love it, and, they, and it like makes their day, and it's such a nice thing we're able to do at the food bank. And once I had that experience, I really started just like, you know, I'd get a deer for me, but I really would just keep hunting because I love to support my local food bank. That dude, I'd want to give him a big old hug. Yeah. But if it's the kind of thing, I one time, let me give you, the first time I ever hunted in Texas, I was hunting with a guy. And it was like a mild girlfriend's dad had a dentist buddy or something like that and he caught wind of the fact i like to go hunt and he took me out hunting down by waco texas and i got a buck and um he comes and comes around to pick me up where i was hunting at my blind and comes around and sees the deer and just says ah maybe i can get jj to take this that perspective where he was like inconvenienced by the idea of having to deal with a deer and its meat. Yeah. Is something that I like, I see that and I think about that being like a little bit offensive to me. Yeah. I have a question for you. So I have guests come and hunt and they know that I donate the meat to my inner city employees. I like that though. But they, they 
have no intention of taking it. They know I have an outlet for it. Does that, it, it's still. Why do they want to kill it? Do they really care about your employees that much? If so. No, that's, that's my question is I, I don't feel great about it. I have an outlet. They know that I have people that are in need and very much want the protein and that the deer will not be wasted. Um, I think a lot of it's the, you know, deer camp experience and sitting around and, yeah. and uh, eating and drinking. But then they know that there's an outlet for the protein. Um, it obviously uh, benefits someone. They know it. But I feel a little bit uncomfortable when they feel good about themselves that, you know, they're hunting and they feel that there's some altruistic outlet for it. it it's That's just not the way hunting should be. It should be, you know, obviously that, that they have every intention of consuming the animal themselves. So I feel like I set up a an environment sometimes that I'm a little conflicted. But you know what? When I'm up at my fish shack in Alaska and we're stacking up salmon and halibut, I'm, I already know. I already know that I'm going to give a bunch of it to my neighbors who are hardly needy. Not even kind of, sort of needy. So if I came to your fish shack with the intention of fishing, knowing that I'm not taking it, that you're going to give it to your, let's, to your neighbors that are not needy, does that change it? If Okay, here's where we're getting into the nitty-gritty. <laughs> this is interesting. Let's say you're at my fish shack, and you said to me, you know what, dude, funny thing, all week we've been stacking up salmon and halibut. I don't eat fish. I'm going to give this all to my neighbors. I would say you can't take any home with you. If you said, dude, I love eating fish, definitely plan on eating fish. And you know what else I'm excited about is sharing some with my neighbors. I'd be like, all right, bro, let's load your cooler up. It's just like it doesn't make any sense. But it, yeah, it, it's like, um, I get the it's same not, it's, not bi- it's not binary for me. It's like, it, it's like, it's just different, man. It's like, cause I need to know the mo, like, I need to be comfortable with the, the, the motivation. And I need to be like, like, when you see the fish come up out of the depths, like, when you see the halibut come up out of the depths, like, I need to know what you're looking at. I need to know, like, what you see. Of course, it's a fish, but what do you see of the fish? And that's important to me. And, 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 and so you're looking for, you're looking for like clues. It's like, what does this person see when he sees a fish? It feels a little bit, you know, uh, I've had people that I've not asked back because they, it felt a little bit more like they were into killing and I'm the outlet for the protein, you know, so I didn't feel like they were truly bought into the hunting experience. Um, so uh, although they know there's, um, a, you know, a charitable um, element to it i just don't feel like they they're they have skin in the game you know what you could do if you were a real prick if you got a guy like this take him he, he gets an elk or gets a deer you'd be like you know what man i don't feel like messing with this let's just take the head and split and if he says yeah you're right then you don't have to invite him back. <laughs> you escort him immediately to the edge of the property. <laughs> it's a good litmus test. I got a buddy who might be uh, throw an even different direction into it, or different layer rather. He, he loves to hunt, hates killing, pro- like eats it, eat, like eats meat, but doesn't really like. He'd be fine with donating. Like he's the type of dude who would, if he knew, if he was on a deer hunt and everybody was like, we're going to donate all these deer, he would 
love it because he would get the aspect of hunting. He'd feel better about the killing and he wouldn't have to deal with it. Yeah. But he doesn't, he like hates killing shit, but he also like doesn't really want to deal with. So what is it? He needs to just find it's something weird, new man. to do. I know. It's so weird. He loves duck hunting because he likes the, the like animity of when you're hunting with like a bunch of dudes and a bunch of ducks come in. Cause you're like, everybody's shooting. You're like, I don't really know who shot what. I kind of, oh, you know yeah. what I mean? But he also loves, he likes the idea and goes deer and turkey hunting. My father described that about being in World War II, mm. where he said uh, he was in a situation once where he like very definitely needed to kill someone. Like he killed someone where it was like very obvious that he killed a person. And that weighed on him. But all the time you spend where everybody's just shooting and all this stuff, you, you, you never need yeah, to. Yeah. He talked about that. He says, you, you don't know. And then it came a point where he, he killed a person with a hand grenade. Whoa. And um, was certain that it happened. And he says, and that's the thing I think about. Not just like mortaring someplace and everyone shooting and just mayhem. And, you know, but the minute you go like, oh, man, that was my action. Yeah. That's the one that stuck with him. That's heavy. And if I remember it right, too, he was telling me that he thought the person was drunk. But then another relative of mine heard the story, and he didn't hear that part. He thought they were drunk, a person was drunk, and maybe lost. Weird, man. Mm-hmm. At night, in the dark. Pay attention here, because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's dawning. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder, so you never miss another deadline. 
Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Yeah, he never forgave the Germans. Have I talked about this? <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah, yeah never forgave him. Um, tough, man. It's a tough did you work up a good pitch for that book? Absolutely. Okay. I think that the meat eater book needs to be tied in with uh, a guy's ability to get women. Okay. I think that. I like uh, it. Uh, I think it. And you um, went to you went to business school, right? It can expose uh, him to his lady friend that he's sensitive, that he knows how to. Uh, you know, it, it can open up the idea that uh, he gets to hunt more um, as long as he brings, you know, a good meal and a, and a bottle of wine the dinner table um i think you could do some type of promotion where if a guy does meet a woman he has to buy five more cookbooks so um i would i would definitely take this on as my number one product i like it what was your backup sales pitch um my backup sales pitch would be get a uh, the women to buy it for their man. Okay, uh, it's not gonna. It's not gonna lead. Um, it makes the woman appear to be sensitive and cares about her man and what he likes to do on the side. And it's something that they could do together. I think that a a, a gal and a guy could definitely uh, create a new life together with a meat eater cookbook. So really good, I, I man. Think, I think we've got a kind of a matchmaker going male, female, female, male. Great job, Matt. I like that. Great job. I think he's right. I don't think you're bullshitting us. Oh, no, there's when no I, question. I actually intend to do it. I've been married 26 years, so I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. Uh, so just I want a little bit about the book for real. Not even, of course, it's for real, but I really do need people to go buy the book. And you're not going to like It's a beautiful book, right, Giannis? Yes, gorgeous. How long have we been working on this book? When did we go to Wyoming and trap those beavers? Oh, that was like 2016. No, we were working on it before then. 
Not much. Not much. That was that. that was spring of 2016. Mm-hmm. So yeah, We're probably I cannot imagine work. how much work this was. Two and a half years. Because that was the first thing we started to try to collect. Because we realized it would be hard, and we were uniquely suited to make the book. Because we wanted to start collecting processing photos. Mm-hmm. Um, of and collect processing photos of things that people wouldn't weren't going to be likely to be able to go and get all of a sudden. So we have processing photos in the book of like how to process, how to cut up and process things ranging from wild pig, white-tailed deer, mahi, 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 crabs, turtle, turtle, beaver. beaver. We had pictures of the beaver, but it didn't make it. No, but the beaver tail recipe is in there. Yeah. Frogs. How to process for, I mean, I, yeah, I'm not even kind of like scratching the surface. Yeah. How to process, clean and process bullfrogs. How to clean and process squirrels. How to clean and process rabbits. A thousand ways to cut game birds, meaning how to spatch cock birds, how to cut them in half, breast them, plucking them, skinless, boneless breasts. All of this information is in the book. Hand that book over here, Matt. You're just admiring the beautiful pictures. Oh, man, I love it. That's definitely what everybody does the first time they open it and skim through it. Everybody just sort of looks at the pictures and skims over the words. So we start with collecting all these processing photos. And in the meantime, like Dirt Myth has tons of photographs in here because he took a lot of um, what we, in, in the working on it, we would call them the lifestylers. So there's a lot of like lifestyler pictures in here. Another section that we put in here um, in everything. So like earlier when I mentioned how how it's laid out, where it's laid out into these chapters where it goes big game, small game, waterfowl, upland birds, freshwater fish, saltwater fish, reptiles and amphibians, shellfish and crustaceans. And there's like an extra thing called basic and not so basic sauces, sides, sauces, sides and accompaniments. And each chapter is broken out with like an introduction of what's going on and kind of gives like general thoughts about the thing. All kinds of beautiful pictures. And then we have this section that we worked on a fair bit called The Nature of the Beast. And what I try to capture in the book and explain to people is that I don't generally think that, well, let me put it this way. Sometimes like you'll, you'll go online, we'll put up a thing where it's like a recipe for an elk heart. And someone will say, oh, do you have a recipe for a moose heart? And Kind of an operating thesis in this wild game book is that that the species of the animal that we're talking about, when it comes to say horned and antlered game, that the species of the animal does not matter as much as the cut. Did we talk about this on a recent podcast episode, Yanni? I, I'm I don't know about recent. I'm sure that we've covered it at some point, but meaning. A shank recipe, when it comes to horned and antlered game, say, and in the case of shanks, also black bears and wild pigs, that a shank recipe is a shank recipe. It doesn't matter if you have a shank from an antelope, a mule deer, a whitetail. It just doesn't matter. It's like cooking shank is cooking shank. So I try to get away from these like cookbooks, these wild game cookbooks, and I, and I own many, that break it out. We're like, here's the antelope recipes. Here's the whitetail recipes. Here's the mule deer or elk recipes. Because it's just like, this is a much better way to approach wild game. However, 
there are like exceptions. And so each chapter has this section called the nature of the beast, where it's kind of like tasting notes on all the different varieties, sort of like general best practices and guidelines. So for the big game nature of the beast, it's sort of like a general breakdown. Like what are, what are American pronghorn or antelope like, like, what are they known for? What are some of the things you can expect from the meat on them? Same with black bear, caribou, elk, moose, mule deer, white-tailed deer, wild pigs. Like, like generally what are best practices for handling them? And what are the exceptions? And what it's meant to be is it's meant to serve as a thing to help guide you through substitutions. If you live in the eastern U.S. and you only hunt whitetails, you might be like, well, that doesn't do me any good because I'm just dealing with whitetails anyways. But keep in mind that we do the same thing. The same nature of the beast thing for freshwater fish, where we talk about all your all of your varieties of freshwater fish, your panfish, the different bass species, northerns, pickerel, smelt, salmon, trout, you name it. All of the guidelines on like best practices for handling the fish and how to figure out substitutions. So when you're on something and you're looking, this guy's got like, oh, here's a great walleye recipe. It's like, well, I don't fish walleye. How do you make sense of the fish that you do have in order to be able to use them in generally cooking um, in generally cooking and using substitutions? Because I think that in wild game cooking, it's like really important to get away from this idea that there is such a thing as a walleye recipe. There's really not. I would say that there's a recipe for mild, white, flaky, freshwater fish for sure. And so how to like help you make sense of that? Um gambrel skinning so how to skin an animal on a gambrel how to do it on the ground so like a detailed piece about how to go ahead and like break down big giant animals laying on the ground um and then we put all these other kind of like little micro sections in here where we have a thing about the big buck myth so there's a lot of like even wild game cooks always push this idea that it's like young animals are really good to eat and big bucks are no good to eat so we kind of like put that to test and, and talk a little bit about that we have sections on evidence of sex requirements, sections on what want and waste means, sections on chronic waste and disease, how to completely bone out, um, you know, how to, how to tabletop bone out a white-tailed deer and what cuts you want to wind up with. So when you're working on your white-tailed deer and you want to plan out where you have a variety of meals you can eat throughout the year, how to like cut your white-tailed deer up, what you should do, like different ways of approaching the front legs, boning them out for burger, using them, cutting it for asabuco, cutting it for blade roast, on and on. Jump in here, Jan, if you need to. Ribs, whole ribs, not whole ribs. Boning out the leg. I was going to say that, uh, and I'm sure most cookbooks do this, most authors of cookbooks do this, but I was impressed with how uh, Krista, how do you say your last name? Krista Ruane. Ruane. Um. Who put more? Who put more oomph into this book than anybody else? Yes, yeah, we definitely owe, owe her a lot of credit. But uh, she made sure that every recipe in there was like not only checked and vetted, but probably three, four, sometimes six times over by professional chefs, and sometimes by two and three professional chefs. And then yeah, she, she would point. say, you know what, Yanni, I'm not quite a hundred percent on. You know that tea smoked duck breast recipe, which so far is like one of my favorites. It was a real eye opener for me because uh, I got to try it because she asked me to try it to make sure the timing was right to get it to the temp. And if you've never tried it, it's smoked, but it's something you just do at home with like, you basically like make your own mini smoker with by just uh, lining a pan with aluminum foil and putting a lid on it. 
sweet recipe. And uh, I, I tried it and I was like, yeah, it was spot on, you know, whatever it was, eight or 10 minutes of smoking and it was spot on. So um, I, I was just impressed at how much emphasis she put into that to really vetting the recipes and making sure that they were just like super dialed in. Yeah, we knew, I've known Krista Ruane for years because the, the production company, 0.0 Production, has always produced Meat Eater, the TV show. Um, well, yeah, they, they like, like Yanni's the producer of the show. We work on it. I work on writing, hosting, conceptualizing, Yanni conceptualizing and producing, but the, the, the company that's done under and handles all the post-production things is 0.0 production. And Krista does other stuff with them because they do a lot of food content. And Krista is oversaw the creation of the book and took a lot of like, and you know, she's worked for quite a number of famous, you know, celebrity chefs and, and other, uh, you know, high end restaurant chefs and took a lot of those best practices to make sure. And so we ran it through where she has a team of recipe testers that we would run all the stuff through. And she was also really good about making sure that, that in going through it, that we had recipes that accounted for everything. So we have like how to make scotch eggs from so the big game section, how to make scotch eggs, different ways of handling liver, ways to handle marrow bones, ways to handle raw venison, uh, tongue. And then like general things like how to roast a hunk of meat to perfection is one of the recipes in here where it's like rather than just giving a recipe, it's like how, like how to do a, like, like a technique for how to make perfect roasts all the time. And then loin then we make sure to have like particular things. So like wild hog dishes and then a bunch of bulk wild game sausages and a, a pictorial explanation of how to stuff and make your own sausages, how to do burger, like general best practices on how to handle big game burger when it comes to cutting with fat or not and how to go about doing all that by yourself. Um, all kinds of preparations for ground meat ways of making pick meat for tacos, how to handle bone-in ribs off antlered big game, more recipes on how to cook shanks and asabuco, how to can meat. Yanni, you did that one. I did. Bunch of jerky stuff. Bunch of jerky stuff. Uh, I came out uh, out of that no feeling like that raw packed is the way to go. Yeah. Raw packed canned meat. When I was a little boy, when you canned meat, you always browned it first. It just seems like the the logical thing to do. Yeah. Putting a bunch of raw meat into a glass jar and then sticking it into a pressure cooker doesn't seem like the logical thing to do. But when you do both of them side by side, you end up with a better product by doing it that way. The, the thing that you found when you were working on it um, that I thought was interesting is when you brown it, it firms. Yeah. It firms up and so it doesn't pack as tight. Right. But my mom canned a lot of venison, man. And um, yeah, you brown in the cubes and they firm up and then you get the, you wind up with a lot of airspace and you gotta top it with liquid. But when you wet pack, it's just meat. Mm-hmm. And I realized I think that you're like by doing the browning, a lot of that flavor was being left in the pan and the juices were being left in the pan and maybe evaporating where when you just put the raw into the can, it can't go anywhere. It catches it all. It's all in there. We had, when I was a kid, we had a, my mom had a canning room. 
it was like the laundry room, but the hallway that led to the laundry room was called the canning room. And my dad had built wooden shelves and it was lined with canned venison and then all the stuff that came out of our garden. And my mom would go to the farmer's market and can all that. And it was like, you're walking down a corridor of canning jars. That was old day stuff, man. I used to think it was cool. Another thing that people like about the book is if you watch media or the TV show, there's certain recipes that really hit us hard. Like, for instance, we did a hog trapping episode down in Texas. And in the end, we, end of the show, we took our pigs to a guy that processes wild hogs. Clayton Saunders was his name in Divine, Texas. And he made the best wild pig shoulder I've ever had in my life and had like that special sop mm-hmm. that he learned from someone. Was it his daddy taught him how to make the sop or some crazy thing like that? I can't remember. But I use it all the time. That sop is good stuff. No, and then the, when you're done sopping with it, you just add a little more ketchup and reduce it a little bit, and it makes the finest barbecue sauce. Oh, really? Yeah. So there are certain recipes in here that you might know from the show that we went and dialed in and tested and make sure they got it right, and those recipes are in here. Like that's called the South Texas Wild Hog Shoulder. And then there's how to smoke. Finally, like, and this is one of the ones that took a lot of testing to get it where it would work for anyone is how to take a whole deer leg. So you kill a, you know, you kill a whitetail, take its back leg, how to brine and smoke a whole deer leg. And I think that we eventually hit on probably a pretty fail-safe way of doing it. The key being you need to brine it way longer than you think you do. But it was one we did and did and did and finally got where I am like very confident that any... Joe Schmo. Well, yeah, last even, time, even last Ridge time we Pounder. did it with that sick of deer. <laughs> even Ridge Pounder. Yeah, you're not, not even candle. You're, you're not going to get a gray deer leg. But when we did it with that sick of deer recently, it came out perfect. I think it's dialed now. So now here, here, like take for instance here. You know, I wish I had one of those numbers. Call now. One yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anywhere books are sold. You, yeah. can go on, you can go on Amazon you right pre- now and pre-order. Press pause right now and go on Amazon. And then you can just go, once you get it done, just go about your day. Turn off the, go listen to something else. But I'm just going to, so, but bear with me. So we open up, I open up the small game section and we have our nature of the beast stuff. So we talk all about the different kinds of squirrels, gray squirrels, fox squirrels, pine squirrels, right? Black phase, gray phase, explain all that. Get into rabbits. We talk about eastern cottontails, swamp rabbits, mountain cottontails, snowshoe hares, jackrabbits. What's all up with those? Then the aquatic rodent section. So like tasting notes on muskrats, beavers, tasting notes on the rogue outliers like raccoon, porcupine, possum. And then get into different ways of skinning. So like pants and legs or shirts and pants method of skinning for cottontails. Yanni has a beautiful demonstration of how to tail skin. Turned out really nice. Tail skin and squirrels. Yeah, gray squirrel. Done very well. You can get a good look at the uh, the Latvian power ring in this section. How to part- Doug Dern and I went out and shot that squirrel together. Mm-hmm. How to uh, how to part out like best practices on parting out rabbits and squirrels into serving size portions, and then how to make buffalo wild wings or buffalo hot wings, which are called we call them here buffalo hot legs. How to take squirrel and rabbit and make a thinking man's wild wing, hot wing. What do you call them? People hot call wing. them different. Hot wings. Hot, hot wings. wings. That's a great photograph for that one, too. Oh, on dude, the, yeah. On the tray. Yeah. That was one of my favorite. The ones. old school lunch tray? Yeah, the lunch tray. 
You got your blue cheese. You got your celery sticks, your carrot sticks. You got a can of soda pop, pop. and a big plate of squirrel hot legs, I, buffalo hot legs. I think it's oh, a can appetizer. of beer. Oh, it's beer? Yeah. Probably like a single hop IPA, <laughs> I, I'm thinking. Um. Yeah, so how to make... Inside joke, Matt. Inside joke. Hopefully how to make yeah. buffalo wings with squirrel and rabbit. It, and it is like... like I think that is a great... Have you had it, Mark? I have not. I, I'm intrigued. Can I make you some this week? I would love it. We already got three squirrels. I know it. Um, I will make you some of that. Sounds really good. Here's one that not a lot... That you might like the pictures for, even though a lot of guys aren't likely to make it, is how to fire roast a beaver tail and kind of the story of how that came to be a thing from the Mountain Man era. How to roast beaver tail and get the fat out of it. Here's another... There's another thing. Like, if you watch the Meteor TV show and we go down and do a small game episode with Kevin Murphy, we have Kevin Murphy's recipe in Kevin Murphy's word, Kentucky-style squirrel gravy with cat head biscuits straight from Kevin Murphy. All about how to make cat head biscuits. Then you go into rabbit curry, gumbo, barbecue smoked beaver sandwiches, rabbit or squirrel and creamy mustard sauce, cacciatore. Then we go into waterfowl. And we get the same thing. We got the tasting notes and then the different processing things. So all explaining all about like dabbling ducks, how to handle and think about teal, wood ducks, mallards, pintails, black ducks, widgeon, gadwalls, shovelers, how to think about your divers where you got your, your kind of high-end divers like canvasbacks, redheads, ringneck ducks, and scop, scoters. Then you got your lower-end divers like buffleheads and golden eyes. Then you got your low, low-end mergansers. Like, what can you do with these things? How best to handle them to wind up with passable stuff? Then all kinds of thoughts on geese, Canada geese, white fronts, snows, cranes, like what these different things mean. A big breakdown on all how to use all manner of guts from everything you hunt with a big section on bird giblets. So how to do gizzards, hearts, livers from all your waterfowl and upland game birds, how to clean your gizzards out, how to detendon. Like if you ever eaten a duck and you wind up with how the back legs has so many tendons, it almost makes it like not worthwhile. Oh, there's laughing powering there. Yanni demonstrated that how to, how to cut a duck's leg and pull the foot. So that you pull all the tendons out of the back leg and you wind up with a much better product how to burn off pin hairs with a blowtorch when you're doing it. My special way of cutting mallard ducks, we wind up with a boneless breast and, and bone-in leg, bone-in thigh and drumstick, which is a genius way of doing it. Handling geese, how to make a waterfowl liver pate. Skewered and grilled duck hearts, which can be substituted with turkey hearts, goose hearts, and explanations of all that kind of stuff. Duck nachos, wild goose pastrami, Soy sauce duck, ginger scallion oil, tea smoked duck, braised waterfowl, seared goose, how to make duck raviolis. Should I go on? Well, you're just I'm making sold. me really hungry. It is dinner time. We haven't eaten dinner yet, and this is really getting my tummy rumbling. Yeah. That's all. Like I said, I told you up front, it was the worst episode of the podcast ever, but it's one I just had to do. <laughs> Because I just want people to know about the fact that we put a lot of work and a lot of time and tons of people worked on it. And it's like the, I feel that it is the, it's like the, the magnum opus, man. It's like the great compendium of wild game cooking. Ultimate stocking stuffer. The big stocking. Combined with Barry White and a bottle of wine, it'd be good. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm telling you, you'll, you'll sell like hotcakes. Yeah, and I, and I was just doing that really annoying run-through of what's in there, but I didn't even begin to scratch the surface because we hadn't gotten into all the fishing parts and hadn't gotten into a lot of the hunting parts. Do you envision that maybe 100 years from now, someone might come upon this old cookbook and look at it and be inspired to go out and try to find all the ingredients necessary to recreate these recipes. And it'd be such and a great write story. A book called write a Scavenger's book. Guide. <laughs> yeah. Could that possibly happen? Dude, that would be like if in a hundred years someone wanted to make a movie, um, it'd be a great movie. It would. Yeah. That someone would do with that what I did with the Scofier. Uh-huh. You really need to buy three copies. One is the present. And then you really need to have two for yourself because it is coffee table worthy. You've all absolutely. flipped through it. Do you oh, guys dude, agree? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, man. It's, it's totally worthy of just having a clean cof- coffee table mm-hmm. copy to flip through as you're having some coffee. And then or have beer. your dirty copy. And then, got, yeah, like, the one that's going to go right next to the Joy of Cooking yeah. in the pantry, get mm-hmm. all scuffed up, dirty. Yeah, covered in blood and grease. It's a big hardcover book with a dust uh, with a dust jacket, and on the front is a really beautiful picture of game ribs and a moose antler. Um, that's all, man. It's like a lot of times at the end of these shows, I'll, I'll talk about how you could really do us a good turn or do us a real solid by going onto the Apple Store and clicking the rightmost star to give us a five star rating. I'll talk about that kind of stuff, or to go to TheMeatEater.com and and get our newsletter which is very helpful to me if people go and do that but this is the greatest uh favor i could ever ask of listeners of the show is you go and in 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 order the cookbook now that's all man you got any concluding thoughts Giannis? do you think we're screwing people by having an episode like this no, not at all. Because I've been paying attention to the uh, the old time, the, the clock here, and uh, I feel like they got a very entertaining forty minutes before you ever even jumped into selling the cookbook. So we did them right. Oh yeah. In a hundred and forty some episodes, there's one episode that's all about people just needing to do me a huge favor. So if you do one in one forty, that's not that bad. Not that bad at all. No. If you're gonna complain about this one, then you just you're like the worst kind of freeloader out there. That's right. Uh, I do. Have a, it's kind of a concluding thought, but I, do, I really want to tell you, less people think that I'm just really not doing my job. I want to tell you about why rabbits eat their own feces. Oh, yeah. This is straight from, this is written recently by an intern at uh, the McGill Office for Science and Society. Uh, rabbits are foraging herbivores, eating mostly grass and weeds. But this fibrous, cellulose-rich diet isn't the easiest to digest. And by the time dinner has made it through their intestines, it still contains many of the nutrients rabbits need. Rabbits and hares beat this problem with a special kind of digestion called hindgut fermentation. In short, they eat their own poop and digest it a second time. Um, They actually make two different kinds of droppings, little black round ones, which is probably the ones we're most often seeing, and then a softer black one known as secotropes that are eaten. And this process is known as, you said it earlier. Say it again. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it. Something Yeah. Coprophagy. Coprophagy. And functions the same as cows or elk, deer chewing their cud. So, and it's, and it's not only is it important because they're getting that kind of second harvest, if you remember that joke, but uh, 
it keeps their digestive system flowing smoothly. So they have to do it. I used to know a good joke about a man who is made to eat uh, another man's feces. Mm. And the, I always liked the punchline. The punchline was, I had lunch with him two weeks ago Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you got any concluding thoughts? Buy the book. And, you know, not to ask too much, but if you like it, I imagine you'd appreciate a review on Amazon. Yep. Yeah, that or, or buy two. Or buy two. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Kenny from Wired to Hunt, thanks for joining us. You didn't get to we you didn't get to lay a lot a whole lot of whitetail wisdom on us. No, hopefully we'll have another chance no, to do that. We'll have, soon. I'm hoping we have another chance. So yep. we have some whitetail adventures today. And we'll have more tomorrow and the next day and Yanni hopefully. had what he called his number one best day of deer hunting ever today. We should tease that, listen to a future episode to find out what happened. Ridge Pounder. Buy the book, man. That's it? Just buy it. Buy a couple copies. Do you think they should do it uh, just because I'm begging? Is no. It like, is it that, like... No, they should do it because if they actually are, like, into any of this stuff, it'll be a game changer. 100%. Yeah. I do think it would be different if you spent a whole podcast talking about why they should buy the book, but the book was actually lousy. Then you could oh, say, yeah. all right, this is That's pretty true. rough. But yeah. the fact that you're doing them a favor by telling them about the best wild game cookbook out there. You know what I'm going to do? It's too late for anyone to be helpful, but I'm going to call this episode begging and pleading so that people don't <laughs> get the wrong impression about what the episode is. Yeah. But then they'll, they won't. No, it'll be helpful still. Or you could call it doing you a favor. No, I think I'm going to call it. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I like that better. I'm going to call it doing you a favor. There you go. It's a good idea, Mark. I was going to call it begging and pleading, which is so pathetic. Yeah, you got to come from a, from a position of strength, Steve. Seth Morris. Thanksgiving's coming. Oh, yeah. Hadn't talked about Thanksgiving. There's a shitload of recipes in there that would be fitting. Oh, dude. Do you mind? Get, take it away. Okay. My brother knows a chef. And the, the chef, it's a long story. My brother hangs out with a chef okay. who doesn't hunt. But my brother would present him with wild turkeys. And the chef, over time to my brother's estimation, perfected the art of making a Thanksgiving turkey with a wild turkey, which is no mean task, no small task. Yeah, no, that's not easy. He perfected it where my brother says it is not just the best wild turkey, but the best turkey that exists. It's cooked by this man named Shannon. And he allowed us to use his recipe. So this is the first time it's ever been printed. Wow. And worked with us to, to go through the process, and then we beautifully photographed this thing. But this man's creation of the perfect whole roasted wild turkey. It's in there. In there. It's, that That's one reason alone just to buy the damn thing. So go on, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's coming. Christmas is coming. Valentine's. Valentine's. Memorial Day. <laughs> You know, Memorial Day. And if <laughs> if you don't even like to cook at all, but you like appreciate really fine photography, just buy the damn book. Or if you shoot deer and bring them to a food bank, you should bring that book down to the food bank too and <laughs> yeah, drop it off. Don't, it's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. Donate the <laughs> book. <laughs> buy the book and donate it to the food bank. Matt, concluding thought? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think this podcast has been a commercial. I think it's reinforcing people's passion for um everything that you guys are about. God, this guy's good. Mm -hmm. Reinforcing your passion. 
Thanks, man. Thank you. All right, guys. Um, thank you for bearing with me as I present to you the Meat Eater Fishing Game Cookbook Recipes and Techniques for Every Hunter and Angler. Buy one now or hell, buy two. And have a good night. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.